DEA Sky Thorleafson presents Adaptational, the hardcover edition. Revisiting the best episodes of our first season, plus newly recorded content that was not featured during the original run. Join us at the end of the episode for our special new segment, The Appendices. For those seeking further insight into the source material, its history in cinema, and my personal connection to it. Now, enjoy the show. This episode was originally released on December 2nd, 2017. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the very first episode of Adaptational. This is Sky Thorleafson, and I'm here to introduce you to this new podcast about the adaptation process, what's great about the novels that you love, and what could possibly happen to them if they were to become movies. Now, you're probably wondering questions like, where did I come up with this idea for this podcast? What my upbringing was? Where I went to university and all that David Copperfield kind of crap? But I'm not going to tell you that. At least I'm not going to indulge myself a little too much. Because what I want to talk about is this podcast. I love talking about movies, and I love talking about the adaptation process. Probably a little bit more than most other people do. Most other people are probably prone to think, why adapt this? Why make this into a thing? We've already seen this story done 50,000 times. Why do we need a remake of The Lord of the Rings? Which I'm sorry to say is an actual thing. And I generally do agree with a lot of people who think that way because I love filmmaking. I love storytelling. I love unique storytelling. But at the same time, the tradition of adaptation has been so ongoing for so long that people just love to explore these different stories that other people have told and try to interpret what those stories mean to themselves, to the audience, and why they lasted so long. And that's why I've started this podcast. I wanted to discuss different types of stories, from novels to animes to television shows, comic books, video games, other movies that might be remade. It's all over the place, just different kinds of stories. And I love those stories. So what I hope that this podcast is, is that this will be not necessarily a statement of what will happen if some of these novels and stories get adapted, but what might happen. I'm not saying that these are decisions that I would personally make if I was making some of these movies. In fact, I don't even know if I would want to make any of these movies. But they are interesting ideas that I would like to explore in film form. I would love to see all of these different ideas explored and postulated and wondered about. It's a very exciting topic, and it's something that I've been planning for a really long time. I've got a long list of subjects that I love to discuss with you guys, which is why I'm very excited to introduce you guys to this first episode and a discussion about one of the most controversial and yet one of the most resonant classics of all time. J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. If you want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born, and what my lousy childhood was like, and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me, and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. That opening line has been read by so many teenagers since 1951 that it can't possibly be escaped. It's been taught in high schools. It has been discussed at random by any number of different people from different backgrounds. And it is one of those novels that has never been out of print. It's never been irrelevant. And it has always been controversial. For those of you unfamiliar with Catcher on the Rye, I'll give you the basics. I am going to, in general, avoid talking about spoilers, although there will probably be minor spoilers, especially for its time, but even for today. The Catcher in the Rye is the story of Holden Caulfield, a 16-year-old boarding school flunk. He hates most of the subjects that he studies, 
He fails so many of them, and he has been thrown out of every school that he's gone to. But he's always wondering what the heck he wants to do, and how the hell he is going to progress in a society where nothing feels genuine. So what does he end up doing? Well, he leaves. Right in the middle of the night, he leaves his boarding school, and over the course of three days, he wanders through Manhattan in New York. And he does every sort of thing imaginable. He meets with girls, he drinks booze, he talks smack about everybody that he sees, and he wonders every weird question and every stream of consciousness subject that you could possibly imagine, all in his own voice, all in his own mind. And the only ones who are able to know what those thoughts are is the audience. Now, a little bit of a content warning. This is going to have some mild language, at least what we would consider mild, because this was very edgy material. It was very edgy storytelling with its language. However, with that said, The Catcher in the Rye is a goddamn masterpiece. And this is not me trying to be a conformist. I'm not trying to be phony, to use Holden Caulfield's favorite word. I genuinely love this novel. This has been a novel that I have been fascinated by ever since I was 19 years old. That was the first time that I ever read it, and it was the perfect age to do it. Whenever people ask me, should I read Catcher in the Rye, I always follow that up with another question. How old are you? And if you're anywhere between the ages of 16 and 25, and you haven't read this novel, read it now. This is the ideal time to read it for you. This is one time in your life when you're still thinking the thoughts, when you can still find something to connect with Holden Caulfield, its main character. Because Holden Caulfield is an archetype of teenagehood that has resonated with infinite numbers of people around the world. And that's not necessarily in the most positive way, but it is always in a fascinating way. When I first read this novel, I read it in about five days, which is completely surprising for me because I take so long to read novels. When I revisited the novel, I took longer to read it. But at the same time, I couldn't help but be fascinated by every second of it. And the fascination of the novel stems from Holden Caulfield. Holden Caulfield is fascinating because of everything that he says. One of his defining features is his vocabulary and the way that he processes the world and the people in it. He's a teenager who is always struggling to find something that he is passionate about, something that he takes great interest in, but at the same time does not feel disingenuine. As I said, the main word that he uses throughout the entire novel to describe people and things that he sees that don't feel authentic is phony. And what does phony mean to him? Well, in the case of most people that he encounters, phony refers to their personality, the type of air that they put on, the type of words that they use. Do they have a certain inflection to them or a style of speaking that makes them look like exhibitionists, some kind of actor, if you will? And that's one of the things that he definitely dislikes is acting. People who behave in a certain way that is not actually like them. Which brings up one of the most interesting ironies about him because he himself describes himself as an exhibitionist. He's a character who has a lot of contradictions attached to him. At one time he will be criticizing cinema, the types of movies that he and his brother DB have gone to see, at one point, he will be criticizing those movies, but at the next moment, he will be reenacting a certain scene or behaving a certain way. One of the most iconic instances of this is when he ends up getting screwed over by somebody. After they steal some of his money, which, they, which he was told he did not have to pay them earlier, he ends up putting on a dramatic air and pretending like he's been shot, like something out of a gangster movie or a western. And he ends up crawling down the stairs, trying to catch up with these two, and trying to just get out of the building. Nothing ever happens of it, and he ends up going back to bed. 
The fact that Holden Caulfield is so contradictory is one of the most interesting aspects about the novel, especially when I was reading it again. And it's interesting because when I look at people who have seen and read The Catcher in the Rye, there's often a certain opinion about the novel, which is that Holden Caulfield is meant to be a heroic figure. He is meant to be representative of these ki- of these people of this particular age group. He's supposed to be the ideal, not necessarily the ideal, but the archetypal teenager. But with the archetypal teenager comes aspects of his personality that are very distinctly obnoxious. That kind of obnoxious behavior, that kind of toxic idea of how he is supposed to behave in a certain situation, and as opposed to how he does end up behaving. And he's very self-aware about this, although he never admits to himself or to anyone else whether or not he himself is a phony. He is very aware of the instances where he is putting on a certain image and trying to say certain things out of, for lack of a better word, societal norms. At one of the bars that he visits during his three-day escapade, he ends up meeting a lady that he knows very well, and she introduces him to her latest boyfriend, a soldier. And at a certain point, he ends up saying, when they're saying goodbye, he ends up saying, glad to have met you. And he immediately says afterwards, I hate having to say those phrases. I hate it when I say those kinds of things. Because he doesn't like the idea of being inauthentic. He doesn't like having to say things that he doesn't mean. And there are times when he does say things that he does mean in the moment, but do not resonate with him almost immediately afterwards. The irony of a moment when he says things like, I love you, in comparison to a later instance where he says, you're a real pain in the ass. And that really hits you. Those moments hit you in a second. But it's all in the service of us as readers discovering what he himself believes to be authentic. And there's only a few things that he doesn't believe are phony. Animals aren't phony. Inanimate objects like snow, cars, and fire hydrants, weirdly enough, are authentic. And most importantly of all, children are authentic. This is one of the mainstays of the novel. And it's a revelation that he, and as a result, we, come to discover very gradually. It's introduced to us fairly early on when we discover about Holden's relationship with his lost brother, Allie. He has an older brother, DB, who works in Hollywood, which is something that he absolutely despises. He has a sister named Phoebe, who he cares about and visits at one point, and he has a deceased brother. And the deceased brother becomes incredibly important to him because he becomes a representation of a purity and a kindness and a decency that is unmatched compared to anything else in the world. There's a subtext to the way that Holden describes Allie in the way that he cared about him more than anything else and continues to care about him into his teenagehood. Allie's character died at the age of 11 when Holden Caulfield was 13, so this was four years before the story actually takes place. And it was one of the most traumatic experiences of Holden's life. He ended up being psychoanalyzed for this. And it was one of those moments where you realized this is one of the few things that he actually cared about. And it's one of the few genuine exchanges where Holden himself is not thinking things that are critical of anyone else. He's not thinking, oh, my parents are nice, but they don't understand me. He's not saying things like, Sally Hayes, the queen of the phonies. His brother Allie and his sister Phoebe are the two characters whom we see Holden be genuine with. And for once, we actually are able to say, these are his genuine feelings. So why does this novel still resonate today? Well, it's mostly because we as young people, I'm 24 now, We're still looking for that image, that idea of what kind of personality is reflective of myself in literature. We're still looking for that voice, that kind of idea of a character who is able to say to us, 
I know exactly how you feel. And there's way more of us who feel this way. We've all gone through that stage of living with the question of how I am going to behave in a society which asks you or assumes that you are going to behave in a certain way. And that kind of behavior can wear you down a great deal. So in a way, Salinger and Holden Caulfield as a character become something of a folk hero, a representative of a generation, but not a generation from a specific time period, even though the novel is set in the 1940s, but a generation of now. A generation that is always in flux and constantly trying to fight against an idea that the society that they live in isn't necessarily imposing on them, but does feel like it's bearing down on them, that they have to think in a certain way, that they have to like certain things or behave certain ways. And sometimes there are people who will believe, yes, this is proper behavior. This is absolutely what you need to do if you're going to be a decent individual. But decency and decent disingenuineness are very difficult to judge and separate sometimes. How much do we know about the people that we encounter, especially at a certain age when we're just about to become adults? Why do we want to behave this way? Sometimes we don't. We just need to find that one thing that we care about so much and we want to explore to a great extent. Holden Caulfield isn't always a great character and he's not necessarily meant to be. But the way that Salinger writes him makes him more of an idea of a character that we want to understand and we want to see from his perspective and we want to relate to him and oftentimes we do but there's always a grain of salt attached to that as well we're always aware of his faults we're always aware of when he is trying too hard to be too different There's a lot of different ironies in the story, and it's a really fascinating read, especially the second time around when I was able to take the time to discover those little details, those subtle hints at the way that he thought and how that contrasts the way that he behaves. If you haven't read this novel at any time recently, definitely check it out again because it is one of those novels that is easily one of the most exciting and interesting to explore for the first time or even again because you'll discover something about the character and even about yourself that you weren't aware of. So we're going to take a break now and when we come back I'm going to be able to discuss a little bit more about the history of this story as an adaptation and ask the question well why the hell hasn't this happened yet? So we'll be right back. Alright, welcome back everybody. So now we've moved on from the book club part of this episode and actually started to talk about things that are relevant to our discussion about film. And specifically the question of exactly how many people have tried to make this into a movie? And in the Catcher in the Rise case, it's unsurprisingly a lot. This is one of those adaptations that al- that has always been a discussion point, but has never actually happened. And that's not for lack of trying. Just looking at the list of different people who have tried to make this story into a live-action film, or other adaptations at one point or another, Elia Kazan, who is the director of On the Waterfront, a Best Picture winner, actually wanted to adapt the story to the stage, something which Salinger himself had considered at one point, But because Salinger wasn't going to be part of the production, he turned it down. When I was considering who I would want to see direct an adaptation of Catcher in the Rye, the immediate thought for someone of the era that it was published was Billy Wilder. And it turned out that Wilder definitely had tried to adapt it. He tried to get his agent to speak to Salinger. Unfortunately, at one point, Salinger actually walked into his agent's office, stared him in the eyes, and said, Lay off. This is not gonna happen. And that was the last that they ever heard about it. Other filmmakers like Steven Spielberg have tried to adapt it. 
Harvey Weinstein, when that actually meant something. And most recently, at the time when I read it for the first time, which was my early university years, Terrence Malick, right after the release of The Tree of Life. There were rumors that said that they were actually going to consider him being a director on a Catcher in the Rye adaptation. Other people, like actors, have also stated they wanted to play the character, character of Holden Caulfield at one point or another. In her memoir, At Home in the World, Joyce Maynard, who at one point or another, when she was 18 years old, started a relationship with J.D. Salinger, talked about how Jerry Lewis was planning on playing Holden Caulfield, even though at the time that the novel was released, he would have been 29 which was not an ideal age for a character like Holden Caulfield. Marlon Brando pursued the character at one point. Jack Nicholson pursued it at one point. Leonardo DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire have referenced it at different times. But they've all been turned down. And there's a very specific reason why. Salinger had mixed feelings about the cinema. And this is in no small part due to the fact that the only authorized adaptation of Salinger's work, a 1949 melodrama called A Foolish Heart, was critically panned, a box office bomb, and took a lot of liberties with the original story that it was based on. Ever since that time, Salinger, all the way until he died in 2010, revoked all proposals for an adaptation. And the other big reason is, he did not see the novel as something that could be very well adapted to the screen. And when you read the novel, you can understand why. The novel is defined by the way that Holden Caulfield thinks. It's all about what happens inside his brain. It's all about the thought process and the feelings that he is unable to express to anyone else, or at least he tries to express, but can't. And that kind of dialogue is something that a lot of people who I talk to about this movie adaptation, potential movie adaptation, really felt very strongly about. Before I started this episode, I actually took to social media so that I could ask some of my friends and a few people who followed me on Twitter felt about the possibility of this film being made. Before then, I asked them what they felt connected to and what, what they liked most about the novel. And a lot of the responses were actually in regards to the style of writing. Just to quote one response, I like the point of view of Holden and the way that we're really put into his world by having the text be in his language, with all the repetition, for example. I'm very interested in his view of phony people and how it contradicts with much of his own actions. The repetition is actually a really good point as well. The novel is extremely stream of consciousness in terms of the way that Holden jumps from one subject to the next. At one point he'll be thinking, I should probably give this lady a call, to, I wonder where the ducks go in wintertime. And he always returns to those different subjects at different times in the novel at least until a certain point when he starts to find some semblance of a reason for him to move forward. And it's understandable as a result to see why Salinger was very, very skeptical about the possibility of the novel being made into a movie. There's a very tangible disdain uh, for movies in general throughout Salinger's novel. One of the big things that Holden Caulfield himself doesn't like is the fact that actors never really feel genuine as people. It's one of the main things that he considers to be phony, and why he considers his brother to be a phony, because he is a Hollywood writer. He can't help but imagine these actors being anything other than actors. They often appear to be trying too hard when he goes to see a play with Sally Hayes, for example. He can't help but think that the actors are trying too hard and doing too well at their jobs. And that's one of the major ironies of the potential for this novel becoming a film, which is that if you are going to adapt Catcher in the Rye into a movie, it itself needs to feel genuine which is something that ironically is a little bit more difficult than you would think. Especially, again, with the writing style. The novel is so defined by the way that Holden Caulfield talks. 
not just to himself and other people, but to us as audience members. And it's not going to be very well done if you're going to just have a narration throughout the entire thing. It's going to be very disingenuous when you have to listen to his inner thoughts. That's when you get David Lynch's Dune, and we want to avoid that with all our power. Please do not do that. And not just in the way that Holden Caulfield talks in his head, but the dialogue itself is one of the things that I had a very interesting reaction to throughout reading the entire story. Sometimes the dialogue is actually written with certain accentuations to emphasize when a certain word is meant to be said in a certain way. Page 36. Uh, Holden Caulfield's roommate, Stradlater, at one point asks him, You used to play what with her all the time? Those kinds of accentuations, very specific to the way that these characters speak. And those are very useful when an actor is using the original novel as a context for the actual way that he is supposed to talk. But at the same time, the question becomes, how much of the dialogue do we actually stay true to in the adaptation? A word-for-word adaptation is very difficult to pull off. There's always going to be people who question whether or not being exactly like the novel in the way that characters talk is going to be either alienating or actually suitable for the film. 1984, starring John Hurt, R.I.P., is one example of a film that people have criticized for being a little too directly related to the source material, to the point where you actually need to read the novel in order to understand exactly what the characters are saying at certain points. And the idea that these characters continually talk in this manner sounds so great when we read the dialogue in the novel. But it's difficult to tell whether or not the actors are going to be well-suited to say these words in the exact way that Salinger or the way that readers interpret them. But I do have a slight solution that might resolve this problem. What if the dialogue was improvised? If somebody doesn't sound like a certain character, or if repeating the exact words word for word from the text doesn't sound authentic, who's to say that an actor who is smart enough to actually interpret how would this character react in this situation say the words that he wants to say? And if that actor was given the ability to say these words in a way that wasn't exactly like the novel, but felt like it had the essence of the novel, it could actually be very inventive and feel fresh and different from the source material without compromising the ideas that Salinger was trying to explore. A couple of movies that use improvisation really, really well, Goodfellas uses it very well, District 9 uses it very well, half the dialogue that Charlotte Copley uses in his interactions is improvised. Full Metal Jacket uses it very well, but if you're going to attempt that, it needs to be an agreement between the actor playing Holden Caulfield and the director who is making the film. It needs to be something that they come to a conclusion about as a collective. It helps to have a young voice, like a young actor, for example, there to give some essence of how they feel teenagehood feels like, but also it's important to have someone behind the camera who has experience working on a visual media and with different types of characters and different types of situations to know that this would work on screen very well. Which actually brings us to another question that was raised during my survey, which was that when I asked my followers and my friends on Facebook whether or not they wanted to see an adaptation of Catcher in the Rye, one of the responses was, quote, Sure, it would need to be set in the now, though. Now, here's an interesting question, because the idea of setting for Catcher in the Rye is so fluid. It is so fascinatingly vague on exactly what time period this story is set in. From the publication, we can discern that it is presumably late 1940s, early 1950s at the latest. But at the same time, there's no, there's no specific defining cultural references that actually state it's actually from this specific era. 
the most that we get are references to the movies that DB shows to both Phoebe and Holden at different times in his life, and which ones that they react to the strongest. Even with those details, though, you can't really discern if the novel is defined by its time period, because the main character is always the main focus in these types of stories. But the question is, does that character need to remain in the 1940s to resonate? And the question of whether or not it could be set in the now has very interesting implications to the way that Holden could interact with the modern era. And some of you are probably shouting, Ooh, blasphemy, blasphemy, no, must remain in one time period. Let's actually think about this for a second. Looking at 2017, there has been so much discussion about different societal changes that have happened in the last decade. We've all gone digital. We've gone to the point where it's difficult to connect with people very directly, and it's almost become a reliance on us to use technology rather than to actually speak to someone. And because of that, it's very difficult to judge when somebody is being genuine when they're talking to them. Again, the question of how do you tell when someone is actually using the voice that they themselves use? Why do you need a phone when I'm standing right in front of you? Okay, that's not actually the best example, because if someone is standing right in front of you, then you're probably going to respond to them immediately. But you get the point. That question of authenticity with technology and also with tabloids and all of the different sort of ideas of what we consider to be news at the time. I'm surprisingly tying this into our studies at Red River, actually. But if someone who was less experienced and less sure what the best approach was to adapting The Catcher in the Rye, if that person was asked to adapt Catcher in the Rye, for the modern era, what's to stop them from saying that Holden Caulfield hates absolutely everything that is so of this time? It's one thing to say I hate cinema in general because it's very inauthentic. It's another thing to start saying global warming is phony. God help you if you make Holden say that hashtag me too is phony. That is never going to go over well. If you're going to make this movie in the modern era, you need to have somebody who knows what the hell they're going to do and how to make that story still feel timeless. Because if you make a modern reference, you're going to immediately date yourself because you are making that modern reference, regardless of who you're trying to speak to and at what time in their lives. That's often why people say, if you set a film in a period you're actually making it even more timeless. There's a fine line that needs to be walked in that context. And of course, when you're talking about that time period, when you're talking about the 1940s, there still is the issue that you're still depicting that time period and you're still depicting opinions and feelings of people that were so specific to that time. And I'm talking specifically about the gender politics. Holden's interactions with a lot of different characters are very telling of certain ideas that he has about the world around him. And not all of them are specific to the 1940s, but some of them are, a lot of them in relation to girls and the girls that he interacts with. Holden is a virgin throughout the entire novel, and the sexual frustration that that creates is all over this novel. For about the first half of the novel, it's almost all that he focuses on, which is that he himself is disgusted by other boys for behaving in a certain hypersexual way, or at least what he believes to be a hypersexual way, while at the same time feeling, I really need to get some kind of something out of a relationship. The entire novel is told from Holden's perspective. His thoughts are all that we are able to hear. We don't really have very much context for what the other characters are thinking, aside from what we can intuit from what they say to Holden about Holden. Another reaction that I had in regards to the quality of the novel was, again, somebody who praised the writing style, but I quote, 
I don't like that there are no authentic human relationship descriptions or any mention of people who aren't completely, utterly cookie-cutter. Interestingly enough, these are actually thoughts that I myself had when I was rereading the story, especially in the first part of it. Characters in the first parts of the story are fairly stock, especially Ackley and Stradlater, Holden's roommates. They're depicted as being very sexually aggressive, very obnoxious and very crude, and I'm sure that a lot of people can relate to having known people like that. However, at the same time, we're only seeing things from Holden's perspective. So how much are we able to say those are actually the characteristics of the people that he is interacting with? And this becomes especially apparent when he goes out with Sally Hayes. I mentioned before how he describes her as the queen of the phonies. And at first, when you first encounter her, when you first hear her voice over the phone, she starts using words like grand and marvelous. And my immediate thought was, oh god, who uses those words anymore? I'm starting to understand what you mean, Holden. I'm sorry for actually thinking that you're actually right, but I think you might be right. And then, after a while, you start realizing that you're wrong. At a certain point of the novel, after they've gone ice skating, Sally and Holden, when they've gone ice skating, and they're both terrible at it, you start seeing Sally Hayes start to realize this was a dumb idea, and she becomes very self-aware. Prior to this point, she's been very enthusiastic about all of the ideas that she herself has had. However, at this point, she becomes very, very serious and very sad. And when Holden proposes to actually have the two of them run away for a certain amount of time, when he starts to describe the way that they will live away from the city and away from, and away from all of the phony people in the world, she starts to say to him, Have you really thought this through? She turns from one of the phoniest characters into one of the most interestingly perceptive characters in the entire story. And it's a trait that's actually carried on throughout the entire novel, because more than anyone else, it's Holden's interactions with female characters that define what kinds of relationships he wants to have and what sort of life he wants to live. This brings us to Jane Gallagher. Jane Gallagher is the most enigmatic character that we know the most about in the entire novel. We never actually see her. We don't even hear her throughout the entire novel. But she is always on Holden's mind. He always says to himself, I need to phone Jane Gallagher at some point, or I decided to try phoning Jane Gallagher. But at the same time, Jane Gallagher gets the most detail about her. In a series of essentially flashbacks, we get to see how Holden interacted with her when their families lived close to each other. We learn about her potentially abusive relationship with her father and how that scarred her for a very long time. And we learn all sorts of details about her, like how she plays checkers, which is not something that very often gets described in the novel. There are very few visual images that we can latch onto in terms of how these characters interacted and how these characters behaved inside of the physical world of the novel. Jane Gallagher is one of the few characters where you get the sense that Holden actually has very genuine feelings towards her, and he wants to connect with her on a very strong level, beyond all of the attitude that he has to the outside world and to his parents and to, and to his roommates and to different people that he meets in Manhattan. And yet, we never actually see her face. If a screenwriter was going to adapt this film, are they going to actually have Jane Gallagher be a physical character? It's fairly easy to do with the use of flashbacks to Holden's early life. But at the same time, would they have him actually make a call to Jane Gallagher and say hello directly to her and try to make a date with her? 
This would be a very Hollywood style of telling this story. This would be the traditional way of ending the story for a lot of cinematic adaptations. But it's not the way that Salinger envisioned Holden Caulfield changing throughout the novel. The way that Holden grows throughout the novel is very, very, is very, very gradually. It nearly takes you to the end of the novel to really get to see what he feels passionate about. And what he feels passionate about is preserving innocence. He wants to see children grow and be happy and be decent to each other, and to live from a certain perspective that he himself, in his jaded state, has grown out of. And this is why the novel ends with an interaction with his sister Phoebe, the other character who he feels most genuinely attached to. Phoebe as a character has a very unusual voice compared to the other characters, especially other kids in this story. She's an adult in a 10-year-old's body. Yet again, she is one of the few characters who is able to say to Holden, what the heck are you going to do with your life? And he actually listens to her. He wants to connect with her on that level, and he's very open about what he feels to her. Sometimes he's actually aware that she probably doesn't understand all that he's talking about because she might not have the reference to what he considers to be phony. But her scenes with Holden near the end of the novel take up the largest proportion of scenes where he actually tries to connect with anyone. And he dances with her and he talks with her about her play that she is going to be a part of where she's actually playing a man's role. And he asks her about the movies that she has seen. Even if he finds them to be phony, he is willing to accept that she is interested in them and excited by them. And that's a level of connection that is not present with any other character in the entire novel. And this is why the character of Holden Caulfield has such a different arc from typical teenage storylines, where he does not necessarily get the girl. But to some extent, he does find some kind of connection, some kind of purpose to his life. And this is something that I would hope would be carried on into the cinematic form. Now, if you are going to follow that route, where he is going to try to pursue that connection with children compared to everyone else, there is the slight issue of trying to ensure that that is conveyed well cinematically. It's a very touchy subject when you have to depict a character who is trying to interact with children without seeming... I'm just going to use the word creepy. As readers, we're able to pick up on the subtle notions that he is trying to say about children, that he is looking at them with admiration, that he wants to feel happy that they can behave the way that they do. In film, and especially if you're trying to avoid saying things outright through narration, or dialogue. It is very difficult to maintain that kind of innocent viewpoint. So if there is going to be an adaptation of Catcher in the Rye, and they do follow this route of showing Holden connecting with children on this level, it has to be done very carefully. And I'm not talking just about writing, I am talking about photography. Long distance shots, middle shots at the most, no close-ups, I just made everybody really, really uncomfortable. I might not actually include this in the end of the episode. This is why it's always interesting for me to talk about the ways that a director can interpret a story. Because there are way too many things that could go way too wrong. But at the same time, if you want to be true to the story of Catcher in the Rye and be true to Salinger's vision of Catcher in the Rye, you need to be able to determine and express exactly how Holden Caulfield feels about everyone. Not just in terms of the way that he talks to them, but the way that he sees them. So if anybody is listening to this, approach that subject with caution, but definitely make sure that it is there. It needs to be there in order to be authentic. And trust me, when so many people have read this novel throughout their lives, that fanbase is going to be very adamant about depicting these characters in this way. 
So we're going to take a break now, and we're going to talk after the break just a little bit more about the potential future of what this story could become if certain people got their hands on it. We'll be right back. And we are back. So we are going to be closing out this episode with a little sort of a fun little exercise that I created when I was looking at surveys online about Catcher in the Rye. This is not so much to do with the adaptation process, but more to do with the style with which that adaptation could be presented. And I'm talking about directors. As I've mentioned before, a lot of directors have tried to make Catcher in the Rye, and interest has always been there. And I should have clarified a little bit earlier that this is still a subject that is up for debate. There's no law that says that The Catcher in the Rye is never going to be made into a movie. In fact, Salinger himself, in a letter, said that it is entirely possible that eventually the rights will be sold. He was referring to a time after he died. But he himself was adamant on not seeing it made himself. Which is completely understandable, because after his one experience on A Foolish Heart, it was not something that he felt very passionate about. But at the same time, a lot of us are very passionate about seeing the story depicted in a certain manner. And certain people have stated their opinions about who could possibly be a director on this film. There's only a couple of responses, but some of them were very interesting. Ron Howard was one name that came to mind, which he's still a name director and he is doing reshoots for the Han Solo movie, so he is still relevant. At the same time, in my personal opinion, he's a little bit safe compared to all the other directors. Two people who I asked brought up Jason Reitman, which is surprisingly accurate in my opinion. Not just because of Juno, which had a very youthful lingo to it. Of course, it's a much more heightened lingo compared to everything that Holden Caulfield says in the novel. But at the same time, he is still able to embrace that image of youth and the sarcasm of the characters and the obnoxious behavior towards each other. That kind of, the kind of double-edged sword of having that kind of perspective. And part of that is because of Diablo Cody's writing for both Juno and Young Adult. Maybe if the two of them worked together on the script, it would be really cool to see. Darren Aronofsky, which I had never actually considered until I saw that name on the poll. But at the same time, Aronofsky has made very abstract movies, but he's also made one excellent concrete movie, The Wrestler. And of course, visually, he is an amazing stylist, and he has a distinct feel that could lend a very dreamlike stream of consciousness effect on the viewer. And there is one less than happy person who does not exactly want to see this happen. This person wrote J.J. Abrams. He's got a good history of churning out uninspired big-budget rehashes. Hey, let's be fair, people. Some of us actually like Mission Impossible 3. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The general feeling from a lot of people is that the director has to be someone who cares about the material. And I can understand that. Someone who can give a vision of the material that is true to Salinger's vision. And I personally have a few ideas myself for the kind of director who could make this movie. My ultimate dream director for this movie, brace yourself, it's Martin Scorsese. And I know that sounds... I know a lot of you think of Goodfellas or Wolf of Wall Street or Gangs of New York when you think Martin Scorsese. Scorsese has never been defined by any one genre. He has made costume dramas. He has made biopics. He has made a children's movie, a great children's movie in Hugo very recently. And he's always walked, he's always walked a very fine line of moral ambiguity, which is something that actually would work really, really well when you're looking at the perspective of a teenager who doesn't have all the answers. He thinks that he has all the answers, but he doesn't all the time. 
This is something that's familiar for people who have seen Taxi Driver, obviously. That kind of moral ambiguity is so entrenched in the story of Holden Caulfield, that kind of divide between what he says and what the audience perceives him to be doing. And that would be really fascinating to see how Scorsese could bring that to life on screen. In terms of the directors who have been uh, discussed previously, Terrence Malick is someone who I would be open to. He's one of the few directors who's actually able to make silence work in a movie. He's actually able to give an essence of what that silence means and how the characters interacting with the people around them into it without having to say directly what they are thinking. Especially his early work with Badlands and his mid-career work with The Thin Red Line, which is a gorgeous movie, of course. Another visual stylist who I would love to see his vision and how he photographs the world. But there's one director who I would be very interested to see if people would accept it, because it's not a well-known name, but she is becoming one of my favorite directors of the current era. Her name is Andrea Arnold. She's directed two movies that have been very highly acclaimed and have something of the essence about the kind of youthful understanding of the world perspective that Salinger is able to create. Fish Tank in 2010, which is about a young teenage girl who is trying to come to terms with her abilities and her relationship with an older man played by Michael Fassbender. And also one of my favorite movies from 2016, American Honey, which stars Sasha Lane as another young girl. She does focus a lot on young girls, but this young girl essentially joins a band of young people to start selling magazines throughout the American states. And she encounters a lot of spontaneous situations. That kind of spontaneity, that sudden realization, and, and the idea of embracing the chaos. It's a very Americana movie, but it is very true to a lot of the imagery and a lot of the ideas that Salinger is trying to convey, at least in my opinion. If you haven't seen American Honey, it requires a lot of patience. It's nearly three hours long, but definitely check it out. And I really feel like she has a long career ahead of her, and I would love to see what kind of voice that she brings to this material. However, one final question that I asked the poll that I created was, who should play Holden Caulfield? And the kind of reaction that I got was exactly the reaction that you're giving me now. And I ultimately got pretty out there answers in terms of in terms of different actors who could play it, or at least the three that I got. The first answer admitted that it was a tough question, but Noah Schnapp uh, from Stranger Things was one name that came up. Maybe Jacob Tremblay. Now, these are both younger actors, so they would have to be much older to play the character. And the other reaction that I got was actually in line with one of the people who originally wanted to play uh, Holden Caulfield, which is young old Jack Nicholson. Um, I don't think that we can go back in time to see when uh, Jack Nicholson was a teenager, so that's out of the question. And to be perfectly honest, I just threw this question in as a complete fluke. I wanted to see how people reacted to it more than anything else, because... In a sadistic way, I don't know if there is an actor right now who can encapsulate the character of Holden Caulfield. This is something that Salinger himself said, and it's something that a lot of people feel about the character. And for me personally, tell me if this is true for a lot of you, especially the boys out there who are listening to this. When I was reading the novel, I couldn't help but read Holden Caulfield's voice in my own voice. And I'm not saying that as if to say, oh, I should be holding Caulfield. There are other actors who potentially could. The one actor that I did think of in terms of someone who could play the character of Holden Caulfield was Finn Wolfhard, another Stranger Things connection. But the other reason why I thought of him was because I just saw it very recently. And his character swears like a sailor on steroids. So, sounds close enough. 
Wolfhard is only 14 years old, so he doesn't exactly have the age or the experience to, say, encapsulate that specific time of his life. But I do think that he does have talent, although I'm not sure if he himself would want to play the character. I don't even know if he's read the novel or not, but it is an idea. But for the time being, that's all it's going to be, an idea. Because the question at this point is that there's no real guarantee that this movie is going to get made. If Salinger was so adamant on making sure that he never saw an adaptation of Catcher in the Rye happen, there are going to be certain people on his on his estate who are probably going to be of the opinion that it should remain that way. But it's always fun to speculate the potential. This novel means a lot to a lot of different people, myself included, and it's one that I would really love to see interpretations of. Because it's very easy to live with a specific idea of what the material is. Your own interpretation is the most important interpretation for a lot of people. But because the character is so iconic, because he is so archetypal, and because he can encapsulate so many different perspectives and be resonant to so many different people, it's a very exciting idea to think about how could a director, how could a writer, how could an actor give life to this character, give life to this story, and tell it from a very specific perspective that was still able to capture the perspective of so many different people who have loved and admired this novel for so long. For the time being, we're left in the dark as to what could exactly happen if this novel was made into a movie. But that's exactly why this podcast exists. And I really look forward to exploring that question even further in later episodes. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome to The Appendices, our new segment where I look back on my old content and either expand on the subjects that I couldn't cover before, or just generally rip the episode you just heard to shreds. I know, that may sound like an extreme description, but it may have to happen during certain episodes. Just not so much this one. But first, I want to thank you all for listening so far. I really appreciate your support, whether it's your first time listening to the show or you followed it for a long time. Maybe some of you first heard this in 2017 when I started producing these things at college, or maybe you came here from listening to Echo and took a really bizarre curiosity at what I did before that. Well, as you can tell, it mostly consisted of awkward sentences about nerdy books wherein I tried a little too hard to relate the subjects of my study to current events and political sensibilities. This is something that I've struggled to do again for a while, because not only is my sound quality less than it used to be at the college, I've changed a lot as a commentator, in that I realized I just need to talk about how I honestly feel about stories rather than trying to politicize them. I suck at being political, even though my mindset does tend to lean to the left. I just don't like to engage with such discussions. There's enough people screaming at everything on the internet these days, whether for good or bad reasons, and I don't feel obliged to engage with it unless I think a certain point of view is beneficial to the discussion. You can definitely expect moving forward into Season 2 that I personally will be attempting to focus more on craft, storytelling structure, and characterization. But, with that said, as far as episodes using my old format are concerned, I'm still pretty damn proud of this one. 
I don't think The Catcher in the Rye is my favorite episode of the original run, but it stands as probably the best incarnation of what I initially set out to do with this show. Create a podcast that focused predominantly on a text that I liked being described in detail, involved a diverse number of subjects regarding what has happened and could happen to a hypothetical film adaptation, and featuring a certain level of research and even some audience engagement. For those of you wondering why I did not credit any of the participants in the original survey for this episode, it's because I was using SurveyMonkey before I started a Facebook group, and I had promised the participants a certain amount of anonymity. What I hadn't considered was that I could ask them if they wanted to be named, but, you know, I was 24 at the time and uncertain of how the format worked. I'm especially glad that I could mention some outside sources and historical events that featured prominently in the discourse surrounding Catcher in the Rye. Finding that Joyce Maynard book especially was a nice inclusion for this discussion, though I only sought out specific references in it, rather than reading the whole thing. Of course, the one exception to this particular discussion was that I failed to mention where Halton Caulfield really originated as a character. Because fun fact for the curious, J.D. Salinger did not just manifest this classic novel on the first try. The original text that Salinger first presented as a Holden Caulfield story actually came about in December 1946, five years prior to the novel, published in the New Yorker magazine under the title Slight Rebellion Off Madison. Now, I found this short story online around the time that I started recording, but I never read it until much later. It's basically a streamlined version of chapters 15 to 20 of the novel, wherein Holden invites Sally Hayes on a date, which ends in disaster, then meets with another character I hadn't mentioned previously, Carl Luce. In the short story, Luce is just a fat, unattractive boy from Holden's school. In the novel, he is more prominently described as a university student who Holden used to hear talk about sex. A lot. To the point where Holden assumed that he must be a phony and probably gay. In both versions, Luce doesn't take Holden's ramblings very seriously, and leaves him fairly quickly after meeting with him. After that, Holden gets seriously drunk and tries to call Sally to apologize, which again, does not go over very well. The short story as a whole is more a slice of life than a full-fledged narrative, and it's told entirely in the third person, which removes some of the effect of having to view Holden's behavior with a grain of salt. But it has the stepping stones for a lot of the elements that would appear in the novel, establishing Holden as being impulsive and pretty self-absorbed. It's not necessary reading, but it is an interesting example of Salinger's early work laying the groundwork for his eventual classic. But this isn't just a book lover's podcast, certainly, so if we are to mention anything relating to Salinger's relationship with films, I should probably mention one subject which I initially cut from the episode. It's not about adaptations of Salinger's work, but rather adaptations of Salinger's life. Yeah, even though Salinger made an effort to prevent his stories from making it to the silver screen, he did not say anything about his personal life. There's surprisingly quite a few films that touch on Salinger as a subject, especially quite recently. The three I had placed special prominence on were a documentary called Salinger, a historical fiction film, Coming Through the Rye, and a biopic, Rebel in the Rye. Boy, these people really love the rhythm of this title. Anyway, I have not seen any of these films yet. But personally, the only one that really interests me is Coming Through the Rye. This is apparently the story of a high school student who wants to adapt Catcher in the Rye into a stage play, and goes looking for Salinger to get his permission. Chris Cooper plays the aging author in this case, which I very much like. Cooper is a very smart and often subdued performer, which fits the author's reclusive nature. I may not watch it right away, but I'll definitely 
watch it before I watch either of the other films. I actually remember Salinger coming to my local cinema back in 2013, but I missed my chance to see it. Judging by the trailers, though, I feel like it places an emphasis on a sensational tone, trying to amp up the drama with music and the promise of great revelations. It's only rated 36% on Rotten Tomatoes and has a score of 40 on Metacritic, so not a rigging endorsement there either. Meanwhile, Rebel in the Rye never came to Winnipeg, but I really do not have any interest in it, despite the presence of Nicholas Holt, who seems to have the worst luck in dramatizing the lives of famous authors suffering from war trauma. Holt also played Tolkien in this year's biopic of the same name, and unfortunately, having seen Tolkien, Rebel in the Rye looks exactly like that type of movie. A far too literal look at how a literary genius created his most famous work, which lacks anything especially revealing or dramatically engaging. I had also been turned off of watching the film at the time because of the involvement of Kevin Spacey. I had already referenced Harvey Weinstein in this episode, so removing another reference to a scandalous celebrity at the time seemed pretty logical. I think enough time has passed that I can watch some of Spacey's films again, but we'll see once I finally get to Ellie Confidential. There's not much more that needs to be said regarding missing segments from the original episode. There were two references where I was a bit misleading as far as my viewing experiences are concerned. I hadn't actually seen either Full Metal Jacket or David Lynch's Dune prior to recording this episode. And I still haven't seen the latter at all. I'm still in the process of reading the novel, and mostly knew about the infamous use of voiceover in the film through the YouTube series Lost in Adaptation by Dominic Noble. It's still pretty ridiculous, though. In regards to my using that point in the episode, sometimes you just want to add a bit of extra info to reinforce what you're saying, you know? And as far as news about this adaptation goes, well, there is no news. The discussion regarding Catcher in the Rye has gone pretty much dormant, which shouldn't surprise anyone if you've listened to the episode. Once in a while, I'll see a story pop up about the potential publication of some of Salinger's unreleased works, but nothing ever really comes of them, and I'm honestly just more interested in the legacy of the novel and its impact on youngsters and adults today. We still acclaim this book for a lot of great reasons, and I do regard it as one of my favorites, both as a relatable depiction of adolescence and a study of a self-absorbed character. Of course, one thing I completely forgot about was my over-reliance on the word society, although I do pride myself in not going full Joker. Never go full Joker, man. Anyway. That's the end of the episode. Thank you for listening. If you want to engage with this discussion in any way, if you have a suggestion for what subjects you'd like to hear more about, or what stories I should look into as a potential episode, please let me know. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DASkyThor. You can also send me an email at adaptationalpod at gmail.com. That's adaptation A L pod as in podcast at gmail.com. Our theme music comes to us courtesy of the East Village Opera Company, so thank you to those guys very much. Next episode, which will be out in a few days, we'll be returning to a story that I'm very excited to return to, H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Join me then to relive the horror. In the meantime, keep those pages turning, and I'll see you next time on Adaptational. Adaptational.